Since the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis a month ago, many black people have reached the bottom of their emotional reserves. I'm just bone tired. I'm bone tired of having the same conversation. And that conversation is happening all over the world since George Floyd's death. When you're watching the same story of racist violence over and over against people who look like you, what are the effects on your own mental health? That week, I was in tears in between meetings and speaking to colleagues. Exhausting, I think, is probably the best way to describe it. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Asma Mayer. As part of the launch of Times Radio next Monday, for this week only, the podcast will be guest hosted by some of the station's presenters, like me. Today, Bone Tired, the psychological impact of racism on black families. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. It was a Wednesday morning at the end of May and we'd been floating in this surreal state of lockdown for about 10 weeks already when we started seeing the same video on our phones. This morning, the FBI is looking into the death of a black man after he was stopped by police in Minneapolis. A disturbing video shows the man pleading that he can't breathe as a white officer was kneeling on his neck. I need to warn you here that it's very difficult to watch. The video of it last was night's confrontation a white police officer, white police officer kneeling on the neck of a black man while he pleaded for his life. I was at home with my four-year-old daughter. I was answering work emails, occasionally dipping into social media. And whenever I play a clip, she always runs up to me, sits on my knee, and we watch it together. And this time she watched it and she just kind of snorted with laughter and said, ha ha, mummy, why is that man lying on the floor? I mean, what, what do you say to that? She was too young four years old to know about the horror of racial violence and I wasn't going to tell her that day so I swerved it even though I knew that as an Asian girl she would have to hear it one day and instead I just said I think he was tired maybe he was sleeping now if it's hard for me how raw and upsetting must it be for black families how do you process this stuff 
And how do you explain it to your children? There's something that we need to talk about. No doubt some of you have noticed that in the news at the moment, there have been protests and marches around the world that started in America. And these are because of racism. In the past two weeks, children's programmes like Blue Peter have been trying to tackle the subject as sensitively as they can. I'll be honest, it's not something that I ever thought I would have to discuss on Blue Peter. However, it underlines just how important it is. So in this episode, I want to know two things. What sort of psychological impact does all this have on families? And what's the best way to help children navigate it? This is a kid thing, isn't it? You're hiding from your children, aren't you? You, yes. You have, uh, no, no, Asma, I'm not. I am being a professional. <laughs> Christabel Nsia Buadi is a British writer and broadcaster living in South Los Angeles. And being a radio pro, when I called her, she was in the nearest thing to a studio that most of us can manage during lockdown. Closet level's all good? Closet level's are fantastic. <laughs> Christabel has a seven-year-old daughter and a five-year-old son, both born in the States. I did not show my kids that. I haven't seen it. I've seen the beginning of it and I turned it off straight away. The reason being, we've seen this video many, many, many times and it's traumatising. As a black person, we know how the video ends. There is heartbreak, there is trauma in it and I don't need to see or watch a video to know how heartbreaking or how devastating it is. I'm just bone tired. I'm bone tired of having the same conversation. I've had to take mental health days, <laughs> as they call it in the US, you know, from work. My kids actually found out about it, you know, just hearing my husband and I talking. And I guess, you know, driving around in Los Angeles, they heard about it on the radio too. Four police officers have now been fired, but outrage spilled into the streets after Floyd, a black man, died in police custody. So they would have heard some of the audio. Just to warn you, we are going to play some of the disturbing audio of this man's... And the shielding had nothing to do with my kids, necessarily. It was just actually a protection of my own mental health and humanity. When your children pick things up off the radio or whatever, what was the ensuing conversation that you had? Did you have a conversation there and then or did you wait until a different moment at home and then talk to them about it? You know, I waited because I had to get my mind right. <laughs> I had to really figure out my own feelings because as a parent, you want to be able to talk to your kid about what's happening, especially when it's something that's that traumatizing. And the truth of the matter was I was heartbroken I found myself going, oh, we're still here, are we? We're still showing videos of black bodies being murdered. It's the story that's ignited fierce passions across the nation as allegations of racism and miscarriage of justice tear apart a small Florida town. Trayvon Martin, an unarmed black teenager, was shot down by a white neighborhood watchman who claimed self-defense. It was traumatizing because when I was pregnant with my daughter, I was about maybe five months pregnant. Trayvon Martin was murdered. When uh, Trayvon Martin was first shot, uh, I said that this could have been my son. Uh, another way of saying that is uh, Trayvon Martin could have been me 35 years ago. My reaction surprised me because it hit me in a way that I didn't expect. And so I just needed to take some time 
so that I knew how to talk to my daughter about it. I had to figure out what answers I could give my seven-year-old when she asked me, why did that police officer hurt that brown man? Which is what she said to me. But as it turned out, she had already talked to somebody, that someone being my husband. And that's how I found out that the conversation had already started. What conversation had she had with your husband? She asked him, Daddy, (laughs) I saw the video of the police officer hurting the brown man. She was indignant, right? And so my husband was like, yeah, he did. He he hurt him. In fact, my husband's quite blunt. (laughs) So he was like, he killed him. And seven-year-olds can take that. Even five-year-olds can take that. Even if Mm. they don't understand the concept of death and, and the permanence of it, they can understand why it doesn't make sense that you'll be hurting this person for no real reason. They understand that it's not kind or decent to put your knee on a man's neck until he can't breathe, even though he's calling for his mum. So that was the level of the conversation that my daughter had with my husband. And so by the time it came to me, we had a more in-depth conversation. It was clear that she understood that it was a black man who had been killed for being a black man. She was simply indignant about it. And I agreed. I said, yeah, it's not good. It's not good at all. And what about your son, who's five? Mm. What kind of conversation did you have with him? He has been doing a lot of listening. My son is the kind of kid, he observes everything and then all of his wisdom and observations just tumble out. So last week, my daughter was wrapping up school because it's now school holidays. Please pray for me. Um, (laughs) She was wrapping up (laughs) school holidays and they were watching all of these videos about African-American heroes and historical figures because they've been talking about it at her school as well and he was watching the videos with her and I could hear them talking about oh so this is another black person this is another brown person and so my son hasn't said anything but he's kind of walked around you can see he's putting the pieces together he identifies as a black boy and you can see him going wait a minute they're hurting brown people and he hasn't quite made the connection that my daughter has, but visually you can see that he has. When you're having these conversations, do you think that you talk to your children differently based on their gender rather than just their age? Because it's a friend of mine who lives in London and they're a mixed race, dual heritage, and she has a son who is about six or seven. Mm. And she, she was the one that said to me, I'm just wondering at what point does he stop being cute and at what Mm -hmm. age does he become a threat Mm -hmm. to, you know, to society in inverted commas? I mean, if both your children were the same age, would you be having different conversations with your son than you would with your daughter in terms of staying safe? I don't know, but I can tell you this. When Trayvon Martin was murdered, we didn't know the gender of my daughter. (laughs) And my husband and I had this freak out and we looked at each other and we said, what if this is a boy? How are we going to raise a black boy in America? Because American racism presents differently to English racism and also they have guns. So we don't talk to our son differently now, but the idea that my son will stop being cute has been front and center. As soon as I knew he was a boy, I was like, oh, okay, this is, I have to protect him. I look at my son now and sometimes I burst into tears because he really is cute. (laughs) And I just know he is five years old. 
And I know that he has less than five years before he gets to school and he's treated differently. I'm interested in the talk that, um, I don't think I ever had this talk, but I wonder if it's different depending on your ethnic group, on where you grow up. I mean, I grew up in Glasgow. There weren't that many Asians there at that point in the 70s, but you grew up in the UK. Mm -hmm. Did your parents ever have a talk with you about how you might be perceived differently? I was five years old when my father, God bless him, who I love to bits, I remember coming home from school and my dad sitting me down and saying to me, we have to have a conversation. And I was like, okay. He said, I think it's really important for you to know this. You are a black African girl with an African name. And I really want you to understand that English people, they're going to think that you aren't as good as them. And so you have to work twice as hard. You've got to make sure you get top grades. So I remember just being like, what? And we would continue having versions of this conversation throughout my life. The sad thing is, I remember looking at his face and looking back on it now, he just looked weary. My dad must have been in his early 30s or late 20s at the time. And actually, as I'm talking to you, I had the moment of recognition because I was looking at my own kid, walking her through the process because I have already had the talk with her and I've already had some version of the talk with my son. My research and clinical practice has been devoted to having this talk. So I do actually get to have this talk with a lot of families and kids. Rihanna Elise and Anderson specializes in talking to children and their parents about race. Based in Detroit, she's an assistant professor at the University of Michigan's School of Public Health. So we call it the talk, which is a misnomer because that evokes this idea of one time, I'm done, I washed my hands of it as a parent, my kids are going to be great. We know that that's not how it goes. Mm. So many of us have seen the video so many times of George Floyd dying. Um, and I suppose that's what that's what marks this out. But what would you expect parents to do as far as that video is concerned? Because kids are watching the news. They might see the face of George Floyd and say, you know, who is this guy? What happened? Right. But what, what do you say to parents about letting them see that. It's very challenging at this point to say that children are not being exposed to it. So if they are being exposed to it, are you going to simply say, oh no, shut the TV off or shut your phone off? Or are you going to say, this is a stressful event and my child needs to learn how to cope with this stressful event. Let's engage in some stress and coping processes so that my child is not stressed out. Well, when you say that, I mean, coping, is that by explaining to them what has happened? And how would that differ if you were speaking to a 10-year-old or you were speaking to, for example, I have a four-year-old? So what I acknowledge is that one way when we're thinking about coping is just that you have a lot of stress that's in front of you. You've just witnessed someone die. So the first question really is, what are you feeling? Like, what did you see? What did you notice? So you're trying to elicit rather than tell mm. So that's the first step is just what is it that you're experiencing? What is it that you're feeling? What is your stress level? So as an example, if I'm working with a 10-year-old who understands race 
more than a four-year-old, that answer might be different for the 10-year-old. But my strategy of how I bring it up and how I talk to them doesn't really change. Mm. My daughter said to me, why is that man lying on the floor? And Mm. I just had to dismiss it because I just I made the decision that she was just too young Mm. to explain to. But obviously that's not every parent of a four year old. So what should people say? Well, how do you answer that question? One of the examples that I use, especially for four year olds, is to ask if they've ever had a starburst. And if they have starbursts, do they separate them out into yellow, orange, pink, and red? And if they can do that, then they understand very well the idea of discrimination. And if they can do that, then they can see there's this black man on the ground. Why is that? I don't see people who look like those groups over there. I don't see them on the ground. Why is it that this man is on the ground? So again, starting with, well, what do you notice about him? Why is it that you think he's on the ground? Like, you don't, again, you don't have to be the one to tell, but you want to elicit what is it that they're already gleaning from their environment? What do they know? You're trying to assess the stress. You're trying to figure out where it's coming from. Hmm. So you wouldn't necessarily have to tell them the whole story or the whole truth. Do I give them the entire history of racism, slavery, et cetera, at four? Likely not. In the same way you wouldn't hand that four-year-old a Shakespearean novel and say, get to reading, right? Like we understand that literacy has to build, their comprehension has to build. So that's how we look at this idea of racial literacy. So at four, do you have the capacity to read this situation for all of its history? Likely not. Can I understand at four though, that people are treated differently based on the color of their skin? Absolutely, because I get the starburst. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. We talked earlier about how black parents explain this to their children. What about white parents explaining it to their children? How does it differ? Parents of black children often utilize four different strategies. So cultural socialization or cultural pride, which might be we're celebrating Kwanzaa or we're going to the African-American Museum. 
preparation for bias, which is just the indication that discrimination exists and this is what you need to do to prepare for it, like putting your hands on the wheel at 10 and 2 or taking your hoodie down. Promotion of mistrust, which is this idea that we are trying to pass down a healthy distrust of groups who have harmed us in the past. And then egalitarianism or this silence about race, this colorblindness perspective. So those are the four strategies that have been found over the decades of how black parents talk to their children about race. What white parents typically do is that last category of egalitarianism or silence about race that is the most frequent use of what white parents are doing if they talk to their children at all. The vast majority of black parents talk to their children, about 75% talk to their children. Parents of white children are on average a third likely to talk to their children about race. And if they do, it's, oh, we're all equal, don't worry about it, color doesn't matter, we're, it's post-racial. We talked about it because I said the word race. But the way that you talked about race was very evasive and you're trying to skirt around the idea of the history and the reality of race. If white parents don't talk about this, George Floyd will happen again and again and again, just as it did on Friday in Atlanta, Georgia, when Rayshard Brooks was killed. It will continue to happen until all parents start to acknowledge this reality with our kids. I felt like there was more interest in race and teaching black history, more energy than I've seen on this issue ever. History teacher Hannah Cosworth has been giving a very different version of the talk. She's been making sure the 11 to 15 year olds that she teaches in South London get a much fuller picture of what it means to be black in Britain. A lot of people wanted to speak to me and wanted to ask me things, which was great, but was also exhausting. Part of it's been really tough because it's all been remote. And I think sometimes it's hard enough for teenagers to express their emotions with their teachers face to face. From the ones that I've been able to speak to, I think they have found it sometimes quite overwhelming and quite scary. Do you remember getting the talk? How old were you and what was the talk? I grew up with my mum who's white and I don't remember necessarily having the talk. My mum worked quite hard when I was younger to show me children's books with mixed race people or black children in them. So I remember doing that, but I don't remember her kind of sitting me down, although I did get racially abused a few times when I was in primary school. Where I used to live, our house backed onto like a playground and a kid shouted that I was a p through the fence. And I remember I was there with my best friend and she was like incensed and she was like, she's not even from Pakistan. The best way maybe to deal with it. I don't know. I thought that was great. I think you must have again only been about like six or seven. <laughs> you know, because people tell you. And I think when people say children don't see colour, I don't know where they get that from. Mm. Maybe not when they come out of the womb, but... Hannah, you are a history teacher. You've got a, a big interest in teaching black history, which is, you know, what so many of us are only now learning because of Black Lives Matter and also because of statues coming down. What do you see as the goal of teaching black history in 2020? Because I don't know, maybe it's different to what it was in 2010 or 2000. What do you think it is today? I think it's so important to teach children from all different kinds of backgrounds about the history of race. 
we decided we were going to look at something to do with the wind rush or something along those lines. I went to a teacher training talk about it and the academic who was there said, well, of course, the history of black people in Britain doesn't begin with the wind rush. And I was just like super shocked by that because my grandma came to this country from Antigua. And so I've always seen that as like my story. And so to find out that actually the black presence in Britain goes back thousands of years, that was like, I've got to do something about this. So the first time children see a black face in the history classroom isn't through the lens of the transatlantic slave trade. And it's also a lot nicer for the students personally, I think, to see their history if they're from a black background, not just through the lens of violence and enslavement. It's a prouder history. You had a job at Goldman Sachs and you left that, am I right in saying, to become a history teacher? Yeah. There's so much history that I didn't learn when I was at school. That was part of the reason, I suppose, why I had quite a complex relationship with my identity. I didn't feel proud of being black. All I really wanted to have when I was younger was I wanted to be white and I wanted to have blonde hair. That was what was kind of held up as what it was to be beautiful. Through learning about this history and and through teaching it, I think I feel a stronger relationship with my heritage. And I hope maybe that I can provide that maybe for some of the students that I teach. My daughter, her class had a conversation about racial equity. They showed this video of this guy and he was talking about experiencing racism and I heard my daughter exhale this deep deep exhale like from the bottom of her soul and I felt so sad because I was like yeah I get it too so do I worry about their mental health yes but here's the thing I was a kid once who was confronted with things like this and I still see the joy in my life. I really believe that all children, regardless of their culture or their colour, deserve to see themselves in books, at work and at play. Not seeing their blackness or their colour as a stain or as a burden, because being black is wonderful. George Floyd's youngest daughter, six-year-old Gianna, said, Daddy changed the world. Now, many black people are sceptical about that because, let's face it, you can post a black square on Instagram or set up any number of diversity committees and then you can forget about it two weeks later. But I wonder, maybe this tragedy has prompted us to make some changes in our own lives. Maybe it's forced us to confront how we speak to our children about race. Perhaps it's made us more likely to demand that more accurate, more inclusive history is taught to our kids in 2020 so that they at least know where they stand, what their family story is and who they are. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Asma Mir, and my guests, writer and broadcaster Christabel Nsia Buadi, whose newsletter, The Cipher, amplifies black British voices and is well worth checking out. Assistant professor at the University of Michigan, Rihanna Elise Anderson, and South London history teacher, Hannah Cusworth. The producer was James Shield. The executive producer is Leo Hornack, and the deputy executive producer is Poppy Damon. Sound design was by Nicola Rofast. Music by Breakmaster Cylinder. 
If you enjoyed this episode, make a mental note to catch my breakfast programme with Stig Abel on Times Radio. We'll be with you every Monday to Thursday from 6am to 10am starting next week. Join us as we talk to special guests about everything you need to know for the day ahead. You can listen to our morning show for free on DAB Radio, your smart speaker, online at times.radio and in the Times Radio app. Know your times. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.